Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Sorry uh, for those of you who noticed, we had to run a repeat episode last month since I had a really, really bad uh, bout with bronchitis, and it was just horrifically painful for me to talk, and I would cough about every five seconds. So uh, I spared you, even though we did miss an episode. But we're we're coming back this month, and I think uh, we have a really good episode ahead of us, and we'll have, you know, episodes going forward as far as the eye can see. I don't think I'll lose my voice again anytime soon. Uh, On this month's episode, we're going to talk some Occupy Wall Street. Now, those of you who follow me on Facebook, and if you don't, go right now to facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, you've probably seen that I've been posting some videos of me and then also some uh, of me with my colleague, Dr. Eric Dennis, in which we're debating the protesters on energy and economic issues. Uh, These videos have gotten quite a bit of attention, which I'm really happy about. But at the same time, uh, they're limited in how much can be communicated. There's a lot more that we can say about America's economic and energy controversies than than can be communicated having a debate on a sidewalk sometimes with three or four or five uh, different protesters. So Eric and I decided that we'd use this month's Power Hour to dig deep into some of the most popular claims made by Occupy Wall Street, since even though not everyone agrees with them, Uh, Many people are sympathetic to or or definitely confused by their claims. Uh, Now, just to remind you, uh, Eric was with us on Episode 7, but for those of you who don't know, Dr. Eric Dennis is a Wall Street executive specializing in quantitative finance, a so-called quant, who has an extensive background in physics as well. That's actually where he, uh, the field in which he got his PhD, and he has extensive expertise in economics. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Industrial Progress, uh, great help to me and our work there. And between the two of us, hopefully we can shed some light on the issues raised by Occupy Wall Street and give you some general insight into America's economic future and our energy future. So we'll be back with Dr. Eric Dennis on the other side. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues. We're now joined by Dr. Eric Dennis. Eric, welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. So you and I went to Occupy Wall Street, I guess it's over a month ago now, uh, and I myself have since gone to a couple more Occupy events, and people can watch all of those at youtube.com slash industrial progress. Uh, so there's a lot to say about the protesters and their motivations, and um, I think you can conclude a lot by watching those videos, but the reason why I wanted to devote a power hour to it is that from all the feedback we've gotten on the web, and and we've gotten a lot of feedback, I mean, one of those videos, even one of the longer ones, I think has about 8,000 views right now. And one thing we're getting is that although people perceive Occupy Wall Street as more extreme in its views than most Americans, at the same time, those views really represent things that people are uh, either grievances they have or confusions they have. And it, it really comes down to the idea that capitalism or the free market is out of control. And in hearing argument after argument, hour after hour, being at these protests, I hear 
two dominant threads. One is that capitalism leads to the exploitation of the many for the sake of the few. And then the other is that capitalism leads to the destruction of our environment. And I think there's a plausibility here because we do have a bunch of real problems in our current system and people are concerned about them. And since our system is a mixture of a free market and government controls, it can be really hard to disentangle what is responsible for what. So that's really going to be um, our goal on today's show. And you know, I'll be more focused on the energy issues and Eric will be more focused on, on the economic issues. But hopefully in the act of disentangling this, you'll get a picture of what's really going wrong with our economy today and what, what is really needed to turn things around. So Eric, I want to start by asking you a, a simple, but I think super important question is a question. And that is, what is capitalism and what is the difference between capitalism and the system we have today? Right. Well, it's certainly important to have that distinction, like you were saying before. So capitalism is a system in which, uh, property is private, in which the means of production, to use the old Marxist phrase, the means of production uh, are owned by private individuals, and fundamentally in which uh, your individual rights are respected and the government is viewed as the institution that protects those rights. Uh, and the, prominently uh, among those rights are your, your right to property. So um, it's a system in which people deal with each other voluntarily, uh, in which they trade value for value, um, and not a system in which the government has some larger plan to help certain people out or supposedly to help every, everyone out. The only thing the government is trying to do under capitalism is protect you from people who want to rob you or hurt you or defraud you. Um, and then contrast that to our system today. Right. So our system today, uh, historically, it obviously began at a point which was much closer to capitalism. And it's evolved over you know, decades and decades uh, to, to this kind of hybrid system, um, which is kind of fundamentally still capitalistic. It's still the case that you, know, you enjoy the right of going out and creating value and, and trading that value with others and making money and, and keeping at least a good part of it. Um, but there are many elements, certainly over the last century, of capitalism that have been abridged. Uh, and altered by people who have the idea that government's role is not just to protect your rights. It's not just to allow for a society in which people can interact voluntarily, uh, but the government should try to help certain people or micromanage the economy in a certain way, which will somehow theoretically benefit all of us. Um, so what we have now is this kind of, uh, kind of hybrid stepchild of a system um, that has major elements of capitalism, but also major element, elements of government interference in all kinds of different places. And uh, certainly over the course of the last 50 years, the degree of that government interference has been uh, radically increasing. I want to just add one thing to that, or, or emphasize one thing to that um, in, in connection with that, that comes up a lot, and that came up a lot when I was on Occupy Wall Street, which is the relationship between rights and controls. Because I think often when people hear free market, they think, oh, well, people are, quote unquote, free to do anything they want. So they can pollute at will, you know, they can defraud people and people think, oh, well, we need regulation, we need control. So the government takes care of that. But in fact, what 
we're talking about under, under the concept of rights is exactly what takes care of that. That's what protects you from other individuals um, coercing you in various ways from, you know, direct forced theft uh, to fraud. And, and what it allows then is a fully voluntary society. So protecting rights allows a fully voluntary society where people cannot forcibly interfere with your action whatsoever and you are free to interact with others um, voluntarily as you please. And a control is precisely an abrogation or um, a stopping or a thwarting of the voluntary. So if they say, well, um, you know, in France, you know, at least at one point, they had a 35-hour work week. So that's a control. That's saying no matter how much you want to work, no matter how much your employer wants you to work, you may only work 35 hours. So a control is a coercive act it's interfering with the voluntary. So it has nothing whatsoever to do with protecting individual rights. And I think that distinction will be helpful uh, going forward. So, yeah. Uh, sorry, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, not really. Okay, well, so let's, let's get into, I mentioned there are these two big claims. One is that capitalism leads to exploitation of the many for the sake of the few. And one is that it, it leads to the destruction of our environment. We're going to Start off with the with the first one, and probably spend a little more time on it because the the second category we've covered more uh, on other shows. So let's start with um, an aspect of the first one, which is this issue of the one percent, which is that. And with each of these, again, I want it to to look at it from the perspective of: is there a real problem here? And then, to what extent is that government control or capitalism that's causing a problem? If there is one, so let's take the issue of the one percent. We hear, you know, the 1%, you know, these greedy people on Wall Street who get all kinds of bailouts, they've got way too much of the wealth, and therefore, you know, we need, we need less capitalism. This is what capitalism brings us. Right. So uh, now this issue has kind of two components. There's this ancient kind of suspicion and, and hatred for kind of finance as a profession on the one hand. Uh, for which there's very little rational basis and, it, and it's kind of just kind of an age-old fear. Um, and on the other hand, there are legitimate things that people are suspicious of uh, that, are, that have to do with the government, uh, the government's involvement in the financial markets today and, and specifically the, the role of the government in kind of helping certain uh, players in, in finance and hurting others. Um, and in general, kind of funneling uh, a disproportionate amount of wealth in society uh, into the finance realm um, and, and therefore out of other realms of production. And so unfortunately, those two things are intermingled in people's minds uh, and they develop this just this general kind of bad feeling about uh, finance and financial markets. Um, uh, but uh, these two things are, you know, fundamentally different. Uh, the, 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 the under the kind of the age old suspicion of finance, uh, again, has no rational basis. The, the financial markets are extremely important in the modern economy. What, what their function is basically to do um, is that we all now in this kind of capitalist cornucopia where kind of the average guy produces so much that he doesn't have to worry about his daily sustenance and he produces so much that he himself has this increasing surplus of, of uh, money that he needs, well, he 
uh, he would like at least to invest and uh, and earn a return on. And so even you know your your average guy today making fifty thousand a year, if he's um, if he's you know rational in how he he plans his finances, will have a bit left at the end of the year to invest. And he that's not his specialty. It's not his specialty to figure out what particular businesses to go plunk his money in. And so typically. In, in capitalist economies, he has one very powerful option, which is to deposit his money in a bank, um, a bank that he is confident uh, in its kind of uh, financial soundness um, and from which he can derive interest from his savings. Um, so when he does that, the, the bank is taking his money and they're applying their own expertise about which companies are kind of good bets to invest in and, and which aren't. And they're, uh, they're allowing him to effectively invest his own money in all these companies without having to have all that detailed financial knowledge um, about all these different industries. So he gets this great benefit, which is he doesn't really have to exert any kind of intellectual energy except for you know, making sure the bank is sound. And in return, the bank will pay him usually a fixed interest rate on his deposit. Um, now, uh, in in modern times, uh, you know, depositing your money in a bank is not necessarily the best kind of investment for reasons that we can get into later, but are themselves profoundly a result of government intervention into the economy. Um, but that element of finance, that financial intermediation, where there are all these people with all this money who need to invest it, um, and then there are all these potential businesses, these startup businesses, which don't have enough money just on their own to execute the kind of plans they have uh, they have in mind, but are uh, but have legitimate plans and have legitimate ideas for new kinds of products and new kinds of services that would add to the productive capacity of the economy. Um, the bringing together of these two groups of people is an absolutely essential function um, that is the primary function of finance. Um, and so that, that legitimate function has to be acknowledged and people have to realize that it's absolutely critical to the function of the economy. It's, it's critical to all the loans you get yourself as a consumer when you're, uh, you're getting a home loan or a car loan or a, a loan for your school. Now these things have been uh, substantially interfered with in modern times, but the basic function there, the function of a bank intermediating between you who need money and uh, people who have money and are, and are willing to loan it at a, at a reasonable rate, that's an extremely powerful aspect of the economy, of a modern economy that allows for all kinds of uh, productive activity, like spending years and years at school, learning new skills, things that are going to create value you know, far down the line. And a lot of people can only do that because they can get loans. And a lot of people can only own homes because they themselves, while they have productive careers and will be able to ultimately pay back the loans, they don't have kind of that upfront cash right now. And that whole process of intermediation um, that our economy relies on, that is finance. And without the financial sector, there can be none of that, or, or at least it would be radically reduced. Um, Leo, let me, so, so that, let me jump in there on the, uh, say it, it's, it's really important to realize that there are these two dynamics in terms of one is that this is, is a fundamentally productive profession, and then the second, which you mentioned earlier, that there are certain government distortions. And I want to get a little more into the government distortions in a second, but just to, to stress something about how productive it is, I want to 
liken it to CEOs because you'll often hear Wall Street and CEOs demonized in the same sentence or in the same thought. And part of what we need to understand is that these are they're they're providing crucial functions and they're providing very high leverage functions. So if someone gives money to the next Google versus the next bogus search engine, that is an enormously consequential decision. And thus the person who makes that decision can make or lose large amounts of money. And and in a business what you have is you have someone who's at the head of it that whether that's the right person or the wrong person, if you read Steve Jobs' biography, there's there's Gil Emilio, and then Steve Jobs takes back over, and he just obviously, I mean, he he takes it from a you know, company that's at a two billion dollar valuation to one that's I don't know north of three hundred billion. Now, it makes all the difference in the world who is who is directing all of these other people, and precisely because these are professions that deal with directing large numbers of other people. The, making the right or the wrong decision is much more high leverage than just, say, an individual contractor or an individual employee making decisions about his time. So it's, it makes all the sense in the world that they get paid large multiples of what other people make. But at the same time, I want to get back to the issue of you mentioned that the government is funneling money or, or putting too much money in the financial sector. Could you explain that? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is an age-old process. Uh, and the, the way it's affected nowadays is that um, the government has one extremely high leverage and important control in the financial sector and in the economy in general, and that's that it controls the money. Uh, when you open your, wa- your wallet and you see these little green pieces of paper, um, which used to be redeemable for gold uh, and now are redeemable for nothing, um, those pieces of paper are creations of the government. Money itself is not something that arose because of governments. It arose naturally uh, amongst people who, who realized that it was much more efficient to have a single medium of exchange um, so that you wouldn't have to go find five separate different trades to get you know, from the shoes that you produce to the wheat that someone else produces but that you don't want to the carrots that someone else grows that you finally want and you can finally engineer some tripartite exchange. Instead of doing that, you know, with spontaneously arising in uh, the economies of the past came this concept of money. And so money is this extremely important uh, intermediator of exchange. Um, uh, and right now, in, in the way the kind of financial systems around the world are currently constructed, the government controls it, which means that the government prints effectively. It, it's an electronic process nowadays, but it's effectively printing as much money as it wants every day or every year. Um, And it's trying to control the supply of money through extremely complicated economic theories and models um, to achieve some kind of optimal uh, kind of uh, stimulus to the economy uh, that's predicated on all kinds of faulty theories on on how the economy works nowadays. But what the government is doing uh, by controlling the money is is basically redistributing a lot of the actual goods in the economy from uh, from uh, groups of people who produced them to groups of people who didn't produce them. And the mechanism by which that happens is that the, the money is created by the Federal Reserve and it flows first through the financial system. So every time there's more money created, 
that is created by means of some some loan process. So even when you just go to a regular bank and you get out a loan, the the fractional reserve nature of that loan, meaning that um, the fact that the bank does not hold in reserve the the full quantity of of claims that it issues. So if it um, if if it uh, someone deposits a hundred dollars in the bank, the bank can go out and make more than a hundred dollars worth of loans. Um, and if a lot of people do this, and the bank kind of operates on the pr principle that not everyone who deposits the money is going to immediately draw it back, then there's this leverage factor, and the bank can itself expand the money supply. And, and under the current system, um, the, the way by which banks do that is controlled by the government. And so the government turns out to be the effective controller of the money supply. And what this means uh, is that through this process of creating new loans and therefore of new money, um, historically over time, the governments just tend to create more money than the economy actually naturally can handle. Uh, and you, you can see this in the fact that, um, you know, it used to be the case that you go into uh, a restaurant and you, you slap down 50 cents and you get dinner. You know, that, that was you know, 1930 or something. Um, and now 50 cents is worth barely anything. Uh, and the, the deterioration in the value of the dollar over time, over long periods of time, is really a result of one single thing, and that's the government printing more and more money. And uh, by printing more and more money, uh, that money is not being evenly distributed over the economy. It's not coming into everyone's wallet in proportion to the amount of money that he had to start. What's happening is that it's, it's being funneled through the financial system. And uh, you know, normally the financial system acts as an, uh, an intermediator uh, for the real savings that some people have amassed uh, to be turned into investments that other people can use. And the more kind of saving and investment that goes through it, the, the bigger its commission is, which makes, makes perfect sense. But when the government has, has artificial, artificially kind of opened the spigot on all of this extra money flowing into the economy, uh, the, the financial world gets all of these kind of extra commissions on this spigot uh, that are not associated with real new productive activity and the, interme uh, the intermediation of, of real capital. Uh, between you know people who need to invest it and people who can use it profitably, but it's just kind of this arbitrary, artificial uh, intermediation between a zero, the the zero that was uh, the money before it was created, and all of these new counterparties which exist as a result of the new money. So uh, this kind of flow of newly created money. Uh, that serves no real ultimate financial end, but increases kind of the uh, commissions on the part of people in finance, it does inevitably kind of shift the distribution of wealth in a way that's lopsided towards Wall Street. Um, and again, that's not to say that uh, Wall Street still isn't performing vital services. They are. It's just that it's being superposed on uh, these other things that are going on to do with all this artificially created new money flowing into the economy. And it's very hard uh, for any individual to, to figure out any given transaction on Wall Street, even the people who are, you know, the financiers who are involved in the transactions. It's really impossible for them to tell what component of that transaction 
is a real financial intermediation and what component of it is uh, kind of associated with this uh, increased artificial money supply. Um, and uh, that's why uh, that's the impossibility to tell kind of uh, one of those you know, components from the other is why uh, kind of we, we encounter this macroeconomic stability where we can't tell if there's a boom going on or we can't tell that the bust is around the corner. At least we can't tell it precisely. If you're if you're very cagey and you you know you have kind of underlying good economic theories behind you, um, you can kind of make guesses about this, and uh, you yourself can position uh, your your investments so that you won't be harmed by these booms and busts. But it's it's inherently an extremely difficult process, and and at root it's because this new money is kind of fungible with all the other money that was already in the economy. And you know, uh, a new inflationary dollar really can't be told apart from all the dollars that went before it. All right. And that's, that's a lot of really good material. As probably every, everyone listening can tell, Eric, Eric knows a lot about this and is very enthusiastic about it. And hopefully we'll be, he'll be writing about it um, publicly at, at some point soon. So we're going to go through the others. We're going to have to go through them uh, a bit more quickly, although with each of these, they do have this kind of nuance and depth, but I think we can get at, even if we you know, um, sort of breeze through them a little bit, just in at least indicating where there are government elements messing things up that people don't see. And I, I since we're on, already on the topic of money and monetary policy, you might as well get to, to this one that keeps coming up, which is this combination of capitalism caused, you know, capitalism, the un Federal free market caused the Great Depression and now the Great Recession, and it wouldn't have happened if only we had great laws like Glass-Steagall that laissez-faire economics has repudiated. Right. So first, I want to say um, I, I talked a little about inflation. There's also the flip side of that, um, which is if the government and under certain circumstances, it simply it, it's it, this has happened. Uh, the government can contract the money supply too much. Um, and the same kind of bad consequences that flow from too much money, the flip side of those flow from too little money. Uh, and that is itself um, it, kind of there, there's a relative economic consensus uh, for good reason that that was the primary cause of the Great Depression, or at least the, um, the, the cause of why it kind of became so deep initially and why, uh, to some extent, it lasted for so long. Um, there, uh, the, the, the underlying point I want to make about the Great Depression is, uh, as opposed to kind of the Marxist ideas that their capitalism kind of inherently contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction and th this inherent instability, um, the modern economic understanding of the Great Depression and other similar uh, business cycles is, is precisely that the government's role in controlling money uh, is what brought about the depression. Um, and it makes perfect sense uh, because you, frequently you'll see uh, imbalances in certain particular markets in a capitalist economy. You'll see maybe some goods were slightly overproduced in one sector or underproduced in another sector. But what's really strange is when you see like a, a general overproduction of too much stuff. Um, or a general underproduction of too little stuff when there's just a, uh, an across-the-board contraction in business activity uh, like occurred in the 30s and occurred in, in 
2008 and 2009 and kind of there are lingering effects of it still going on now. When you see something that pervades all the markets for all the different goods and it and it there's this coordinated correlated uh, you know boom or bust, the the only thing that links all of those separate markets in the economy is money. So uh, it it stands to reason that if you see some huge aberration in all markets at the same time, the root of it has something to do with money. And in our economy, where the government is in control of the money supply, it's really uh, the culpability ultimately lies with the government. Um, now we can talk about different kinds of arrangements you could have in which money is completely private, and there are historical examples of this, and they function quite stably compared to systems of government money. Um, but ultimately, the blame for serious monetary disturbances, at least since the Federal Reserve, and, and actually um, uh, you, one can make a convincing argument even before the Federal Reserve because of the, the nature of our banking system before the Federal Reserve, uh, it's really government and its control of the money supply that, uh, that was the ultimate cause of the Great Depression and our recent financial contraction. What, what about this argument that, because it's really, almost, it really shocks me that I keep hearing that it's just everything is Glass-Steagall. If only we hadn't right. repealed Glass-Steagall, and then if only we reinstate Glass-Steagall, then everything will be solved. Right. Now, this is actually an outgrowth, the, the whole situation with Glass-Steagall. So first, we should say what Glass-Steagall is. Uh, Glass-Steagall is this law that came about in the 90s um, that, uh, that, uh, Allowed, it was the 90s? Glass-Steagall, uh, Glass sorry, the, uh, the repeal of the law came about in the 90s. Um, in the 90s, what happened was investment banks were allowed uh, for the first time in a long time um, to have uh, uh, commercial banking components. So before this point in the 90s, for, for a long period in time, um, for many decades before that, uh, you could not have an investment bank which had a commercial banking component, meaning that the investment bank was not allowed to take deposits. Um, so, uh, the now why why in the world would the government want to you know interfere with uh, a, a bank and whether it took deposits or not? Um, the ultimate answer for that is that uh, deposits. When you put your money in the bank today. Uh, there's this thing, the FDIC, uh, which is a government agency which, at least nominally, is supposed to insure all of your bank deposits so that if somehow the bank goes bust, like we just saw uh, this financial company, which itself was effectively a bank, it was uh, called MF Global, run by John Corzine. Um, this is an example of a bank going bust. And um, now, in the case of MF Global, it's, it was more a commodities broker than a standard bank. But the point is that if your bank goes bust, the government is going to come in and make sure that if the bank lost all your money, it's going to give the government, through obviously through its borrowing and, and tax monies, is going to give you your deposit back. Okay, and this was this this government deposit insurance um, was created in the 1930s in the Great Depression. Um, and it uh, and under the the idea that 
uh, a private citizen shouldn't have to worry about the solvency of his own bank. That should be some kind of guarantee that he has. He should never have to bother himself with wondering whether the money he puts into a given financial institution is, is, is being given to a sound group of investors or it's being given to a bunch of fraudsters. It's not really, he shouldn't be burdened with having to determine that. The government will guarantee that where, whatever bank he goes to, um, his money will be safe. And a, a, a natural result of this is people don't care uh, what bank their money goes into. And you, you kind of see this um, you know, in recent history with when you, when you uh, especially before the, 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 uh, you know, the recent contraction, say in 2006, 2007, when uh, you could get 5 6% on your money um, just by depositing it in a bank. Um, you didn't really care. You went and searched on the web. You searched out the some little podunk, podunk bank in you know Nowheresville, uh, Wisconsin, that uh, that was paying some ridiculously high interest rate, and you didn't care. You plunked your money in there because you have FDIC, and and this system um, that has kind of separated you from any concern for, uh, for what is the nature of the institution that your money is going into. This created this kind of perverse incentive, this moral hazard, where banks were getting all this money, um, and they, uh, you know, they uh, they could go out and potentially invest it in extremely leveraged uh, uh, ventures that were much more risky than the people who actually deposited the money would be willing uh, to to get involved in. Now, what ha so what happened in the 30s is that. Because, uh, because of the creation of the FDIC and, and people's awareness of this possibility of this moral hazard that the banks would have, there was this um, kind of artificial limitation on which banks uh, could accept uh, depositor money and therefore which banks would have FDIC protection. Um, and so uh, this, this kind of prohibition on investment banks having depositors money itself is simply a result of uh, the, the federal uh, deposit insurance, um, which is uh, an example of the, the kind of the snowball process of what happens when you start, when the government starts intervening into markets. It'll, it'll execute one intervention, namely guaranteeing people's money um, in bank accounts, and that forces them to then uh, Go forward in, in other interventions, micromanaging the the you know what different kinds of banks do, in order to prevent the kind of moral hazard that it created with its first intervention. Um, so now, the the fact of the matter in in terms of kind of our recent financial episode is that um, the the constraint uh, that that is put on banks um, by the the Federal Reserve. That had been in effect for many decades, uh, you know, up until the early '90s, uh, was a, effectively just a constraint on what fraction of depositors' money the bank would have to hold as reserves, and what, therefore, what fraction the bank could lend out, um, uh, and you know, creating this kind of leveraged financial structure and. Uh, and because of this system of government-controlled money, the government took upon itself and kind of had to take upon itself the kind of the job of arbitrarily specifying how much leverage these banks could have. Now, what happened in the 90s 
was that this constraint that the government uh, put on these financial institutions became less and less binding because of certain kinds of financial intervention, uh, uh, certain types of financial innovations that uh, that kind of obscured the nature of uh, this lending process, and it's involved with these kind of securitized forms of lending. But the ultimate uh, upshot of the whole process is that uh, the the banks coming into the 90s were no longer constrained by any binding kind of regulations about what their leverage had to be, and they had this inherent kind of moral hazardous uh, incentive to just take on riskier and riskier investments. So that was certainly a component um, in this this whole uh, boom-bust process that we've been seeing. But the, the, the prohibition on investment banks taking deposits, the, the issue of Glass-Steagall, that's only the, the most derivative kind of manifestation of it. it. It's really fundamentally a result of the kind of government intertwining itself into the, the, the whole banking system beginning um, in, in a major way with uh, deposit insurance. Yeah, and I think I think um, just even even listening to the complexity of this and all the different mechanisms at work, this this should really highlight to people that when we see a problem in the economy, it's it's we really need to think about. Given that we have such a mixture of, of free market and controls, really need to look at what's actually causing things. And if you just read one editorial and it says, "Oh, Glass Steagall." That is not a real uh, sort of explanation, especially when you have a government that controls things on such a fundamental level, namely controlling the whole issue of, of the money that we use, which which uh, pervades everything. Now, to to switch to a different aspect uh, of capitalism that is really at issue in the whole Occupy Wall Street thing, let's talk about the issue of, of foreign trade and, and particularly the issue of outsourcing or offshoring um, quote unquote American jobs because we get we see in our economy we have issues with you know there's a large uh, percentage of unemployment and people say well it's because companies are free under capitalism to just give jobs to low price labor and so we need some form of protectionism but in any case capitalism is at fault for people losing their factory job or, or whatever job they have, and the fact that it's it's difficult to find a job. Uh, right, and certainly there are periods uh, in the history of any kind of advanced economy where you had, uh, due to the kind of increased uh, innovations and, and productivity enhancing ideas that uh, are spinning around the economy, you have a group of people who served an economic function, uh, a function which has diminishing importance you know, going forward into the future, and those people need to you know, re-educate themselves and repurpose themselves and, and, and take on new careers. Um, so capitalism is not somehow uh, inoculated from any kinds of, uh, you know, temporary unemployment. Um, but the, the natural resilience of the capitalist economy, when it's not, when there aren't impediments thrown in front of everybody, and particularly in front of employers and, and particularly kind of like uh, you know, uh, small businesses um, and startup em uh, employers who, uh, you know, under our, our current system face this ominous burden of, of uh, regulation uh, that, that really discourages people even from uh, embarking on new startups, much less from, you know, 
up hiring all of the people they would like to hire if, if they didn't have to deal with you know, uh, worker safety regulations and all, all kinds of uh, taxes that they have to pay for employees and all kinds of economic regulations that they face, um, much less the things that happen to, them, happen to them if they become you know, particularly successful and they want to merge with a partner and, and some agency from the government tells them they can't or some other agency from the government tells them that their, uh, their facilities are located on top of like a, snare, a snail darter wetland or something. Um, so the, there, there's a huge burden that over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years we've placed on companies that has, uh, that has crippled their ability to kind of innovate and expand and be flexible. Um, but there's, there's also a larger point, which is that, um, so there, there's this kind of uh, phobia about uh, all of the jobs will be outsourced to, to China or to India. Um, and there, it certainly is the case that, uh, that if the Chinese are willing to produce uh, you know, the same amount of, uh, of, of products for half the price and maybe the quality is only uh, one quarter worse, uh, you know, then there will certainly be markets for those goods and, and they can potentially outcompete some American workers. But, uh, but the point is that on net, America is profoundly gaining from China. Yes, certain workers can be temporarily displaced, but it's, you can kind of view China as a grand new invention. It's as if China were a new machine. And instead of having to, uh, having to devote millions and millions of man hours to work um, that would have you know, occupied many, many employees in, in America, someone invented this machine, which is China. And uh, you can run it very cheaply. And you send in a little capital. And uh, out comes this, this free flow of goods that's you know, much more abundant than what you would get for the equivalent investment in, in an American company for certain types of products. That's essentially as if someone invented a new productive machine and we're making use of that machine and it's extremely valuable. So kind of the worry that um, China is somehow going to displace all of our, our workers and that we're ultimately going to become impoverished because China is, is producing all of these things and we're not producing. It's the same exact argument that people made against the car or the cotton gin or any piece of technology because China is effectively just a more efficient way of produces, producing something that economizes on our own labor. And, uh, and just as uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the cotton workers of uh, 150 years ago had to adapt to the fact that there was a, a cotton gin, um, so we have to adapt to the, the fact that we have this great productive resource, which is China. Um, but on net, it's a great benefit to us, and, and we should be extremely grateful for it. Um, in terms of that, that analogy of the machine, uh, I want to bring up two aspects. The first is what about the issue of the, you know, of the nature of the labor and how many rights violations are involved in the labor? Because whenever people bring up China to me at Occupy Wall Street protests or Occupy protests, I guess they call themselves, it's, it's always 
it's always lumping together the issue of cheaper labor for a given task and then slave or exploited labor. To me, that seems like a complete package deal and that much of what's going on in China has nothing to do with exploiting people. And in fact, they exploit people much less than they used to. And that's precisely why they're, they're productively valuable. Today. Oh, yeah, there's no question. I mean, now the context is always dropped in these things, but one has to remember that, you know, as early ago as the 70s, I mean, China was a barren wasteland uh, where people were, you know, barely consuming enough to stay alive in many cases. And it's standard, the standard of living of Chinese workers and Chinese farmers was way below what it is now. I mean, uh, for the last number of decades, there's been something like a, an average of a 5% annual increase in the real amount of consumption per Chinese worker. So a, a Chinese worker, not because those workers were, uh, you know, becoming, they were, uh, they were advancing in their own careers. I mean, if you take the same, the, like an individual of the same age, uh, each year over the last 20 or 30 years in China, his real consumption, the amount of food he eats and his, you know, the, the quality of his housing, et cetera, that has increased 5% per year. That's an astounding rate of growth um, in, in the rate of real consumption. And it's a result of the fact that you have this huge productive potential, namely a billion people who were living in pre-industrial conditions. And um, after the Chinese had kind of uh, thrown off the burden of this kind of ridiculous Marxist economic philosophy that they had, uh, to some extent, obviously they're still technically governed by a, a communist regime, although it's not really communist. If anything, it's kind of closer to fascist. Um, nevertheless, it's much less economically controlled right now than what it had been before uh, you know, during the 70s and, and, and prior to the 70s after World War II. Um, but you have this enormous growth in, in the well-being of the Chinese people precisely because they've been freed up, at least in part. Um, and as I said, it's still a, somewhat of a fascistic regime, but there's certainly more freedom now than there had been. And you, that, that additional freedom has allowed these billion people to come into the industrial age or to at least start coming into the industrial age. And it's been a tremendous boon to the Chinese people. I mean, there's absolutely no question, just as, as it was a tremendous boon to America um, in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and the same kinds of canards are thrown out about how these poor uh, workers are being exploited by these factory owners when you have to compare it to what the, their alternative is. Going back to the farm and working 16-hour, you know, break back days um, in order to come home and, and barely earn the kind of the, the compensation that your grandfather earned 50 years before you, um, except it's probably 25 years before you because you die when you're 40. Um, that, you know, when you realize in relative terms the gain that they've had, there's absolutely no question that China entering into the industrial world uh, in aggregate, on net, is a, is a huge benefit to them as well to us. Yeah, and I, I think there's, it, it's helpful to, to parse these issues out 
the way that you did because there's this one aspect that that bugs me about it which is not realizing that all other things being equal another country being more productive is in your interest in the same way that another individual being more productive is in your interest so if america's productivity stays the same and china's productivity increases that makes us bet that makes us better off now people get bothered by the kind of relative productivity which i don't think is a proper primary focus i don't think it's it's we should think of life as well we need to be x times more productive and thus x times more well compensated than other countries but what we should want is to be as productive as possible and this this comparison and this almost envy of china or scapegoating of china is really drawing away attention from the the thing that you mentioned earlier which is the complete um anti-industrial assault and really anti-capitalist assault on American business that's been taking place for decades and decades and decades. And part of what's happening is other countries in many ways are allowing more freedom for businesses than America is. And thus, maybe in the 60s, you know, you wouldn't have too much recourse to deal with another, you know, with a car company besides the heavily regulated, heavily subsidized car companies in the U.S. But then once other countries free up, then there's real competition. But the solution is not to blame the other countries. It's to blame our policies and realize that people were to some degree getting away with a free lunch or we were getting, see, people were getting away with all these regulations um, and not suffering their full destructive consequences or not seeing their full destructive consequences because there was a lack of competition in, in the form of freer elements of other other countries. But our response to that has to be liberate our own economy and thus in something like manufacturing, don't add an extra ten to fifteen thousand dollar burden per employee. Don't have a green gauntlet that every co company has to go through to do anything industrial. That that really needs to be our focus. And of course that's that's a big part of of Center for Industrial Progress. Now um, let's go through a couple more of these um, quickly and then we might have to cover a couple more on we might do some power surges on this that's our, our shorter form of power hour uh, later this month but let's um, could you just touch for a minute or two on the issue of corporate personhood because that's another thing that's really blamed that's really considered the devil at these Occupy Wall Street protests right and this is just kind of a silly canard um, corporations there's there's this and it's really this you know very old school, almost religious demonization of the entity, which is a corporation. But all a corporation is, is it's a bunch of people who have made agreements with each other about what they're, what they're going to supply to each other in the productive process. Um, you know, so I get together, well, you know, I want to start a motorcycle business and I have all the metal parts, but I'm not that great at building motorcycles and I make an agreement with some other guy who doesn't have the parts but knows how to build them that he's going to devote a certain number of hours per week to building them and he's going to get a certain commission and, and we start, that is a corporation, you know, add a couple more people, throw a little legal wrapping on top of it and that's a corporation, it's just a bunch of people making agreements with each other. And the corporation is not some entity that's absorbing wealth, you know, at the expense of people and it's people against the corporation. No, it's 
And in fact, in modern society, in at least kind of the Western uh, you know, industrial society, corporations themselves are not uh, typically owned by wealthy fat cats. They're owned by all of us. They're owned by us when we buy stock in our 401ks. Um, but even if they were owned by wealthy fat cats, they would be wealthy fat cats who had the virtue of assembling a bunch of human beings to engage in a productive activity which couldn't exist apart from this set of agreements and this corporation. And the profits that a corporation make, uh, they don't kind of sit, go into like some netherworld through some you know, black hole that they're sucked into. They are distributed to people. And uh, uh, the personhood of a corporation is just a legal mechanism by which these people who are engaged in this productive activity, when they face kind of legal questions, um, can be subsumed under one kind of, in, inside one kind of legal bucket in order for there to be efficient legal processes. I mean, that's in fact what allows you, if you're wronged by a corporation, uh, or rather by individuals that are part of a corporation, if you're wronged somehow, the, the so-called personhood of the corporation is, is what allows you to, to seek redress in court against them. Otherwise, you'd go have to figure out which middle manager to sue and, and you know, which, uh, which assistant bookkeeper uh, is going to you know, pay you what uh, percentage of his salary because you were wronged by some you know, nebulous process in this corporation. I mean, so uh, corporate personhood is just a, uh, a, an efficient legal construct um, that allows us to deal with situations where a bunch of people, um, to each of their mutual advantage, need to get, want to get together and contribute their productive activities in a cooperative fashion. And I think it's important to just highlight that anything the corporation does, assuming it's, it's you know, based on clear objective agreements, is being done by the individuals. You know, even if you're a stockholder, you have to know that the corporation is acting on your behalf or you're acting as the corporation. So that's part of why you need to be a responsible shareholder. But you're right, it's, 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 it's just, it's acting like there's this somehow demon that's been foisted on us by the world instead of just a bunch of people agreeing uh, to do certain things on certain terms in a way that's incredibly valuable to uh, the whole functioning of of you know to to their success and to the more broadly to the functioning of an economy. I wanted to devote in my wrap up. I'll probably do a little more on this, but I wanted to devote just a minute or two, especially since your background is in, in science and, and modeling, on these uh, this issue of capitalism leading to destruction uh, of environment. And I'll take it from this perspective: when we were in when we were in New York, one. You know, we kept getting in one form or another, either we're going to run out of resources uh, or, you know, we're going to, you know, the fact that we're tampering with nature so much, nature is going to come back to bite us. There were these two refrains. And I would sometimes just say journalistically, well, it's interesting that we've followed this industrial policy of, of transforming nature. And it's so far, human life has gotten much better. And yet there's this almost faith or, or very strong confidence in a certain way that, well, things are bound to get much worse. So what do you think is behind this, this idea we, we're going to run out of resources, nature is going to bite us? Uh, where's, that, where's that coming from? Well, you know, it's kind of ironic because, you know, throughout history, 
there's always some group of people um, who need uh, some kind of demon to oppose themselves against and to attribute their, their bad luck to or their incompetence to or whatever kind of unfortunate situation. And it's convenient for a lot of people to project that onto some entity. And historically, there have been all kinds of great examples of this. I mean, you know, the king in, in medieval times, uh, one, one, there's a lot of reason why one would want to uh, attribute one's uh, misfortune to, uh, to a tyrant or a despot. Um, nowadays, the irony is that it's so difficult for a, a normal, uh, say, American worker to find someone who is plausibly the source of all of his troubles that we resort to this extremely kind of uh, abstract, um, uh, you know, uh, demon that, that we attempt to identify. And it, it's, it operates at a level of abstraction much higher than a, a single person. It's, it's, it's this kind of nebulous, uh, very ill-defined set of um, uh, uh, effects we're having on the environment that occur in all kinds of subtle ways that only you know, PhDs in climate science can fully understand. Uh, but nevertheless, we're sure that there's going to be this this inevitable uh, whiplashing return of all of these things that we visited on the environment. It's so spooky and ill-defined. Um, it, it's, it's really hard to get your hands on it until you get down to the level of some kind of technical detail. And when you do that, what you see is scientifically their arguments are extremely flimsy. And there's a whole history of this kind of uh, you know, quasi-religious and certainly political movement making all kinds of claims um, about the, the, the terrible consequences that our, uh, you know, uh, using the materials that the earth uh, contains, that, that this process would lead to all of these negative consequences, and they just haven't panned out. They haven't happened. Um, and in fact, over industrial civilization, as you've pointed out, um, our environment has become much better. Our water is much cleaner. Our, our surroundings are much nicer. I mean, if you look at how people lived, even in New York, uh, you know, 80 years ago, you can go walk into these tenements and you see what their environment was like before, you know, large scale industrialization, say 150 years ago, before large scale indu industrialization really occurred. And it's no place you'd want to live. It's the opposite of the environment that you'd want. It's these cramped little quarters with bad water and tiny little faucets and you're you're living in a tiny room with three people and and what industrial activity has produced is a situation where you have your own dwelling even someone on a relatively modest income in america has his own dwelling with all of these advanced trinkets and all these labor-saving devices and he goes out and he he sees you know a a, a perfectly uh, nice looking brook in front of his house or he, he gets water from his sink and it's, and it's high quality water. It's the opposite of what he might have got, you know, a hundred years ago if he had had to kind of sludge his way through some uh, kind of random uh, place in his neighborhood in order to pick up, you know, uh, find a well or something. Uh, we have all of these things that are the result of industrialization um, and that are represent dramatic improvements in our environment 
And it's just on, if, if you were to take someone from 150 years ago and bring him to one of these Occupy protests and he were to hear all these slogans about how the environment is so awful and then you were to take him and show him how those people themselves were actually living, he would be absolutely flabbergasted. And then he would ask, well, why do you, you think this is so awful? What do you think produced all this awfulness? And you tell him, well, all of the, the industrial civilization that allowed us to live in these big spaces and have this clean water. And, and he, would, he, he could do nothing but laugh. I mean, it's so absurd. Um, we've gotten to the point where our demons are just utterly ironic. Yeah, and it, I think so much of it comes down to people not... I mean, I, Ayn Rand had this essay, which is one of my favorites, called What is Capitalism? And I remember when I, I first read it, it was probably 18, and I thought, well, why would you write an essay, What is Capitalism? Everyone knows what capitalism is. And with every passing year, I think, wow, that is just about the most necessary essay anyone could ever write. And if, if you read it, it really stresses the essential point that you need to understand all of these environmental issues, which is um, the role of the mind in capitalism and how capitalism as the system that respects individual rights, the reason that it quote unquote works so well and that life gets better and better is not, you know, it's not luck. It's, it's in the very nature of, of unleashing human ingenuity to solve all of life's problems and to make things better and better and better. And in an environmental context, that means looking at your surroundings and thinking, how can I make these uh, better? And what that leads to is the surroundings get better. Now, one could ask, well, what about if there are issues of, let's say, in the aggregate, a certain you know, number of automobiles in a certain area, say Los Angeles, will cause smog? Well, because capitalism is the system of the mind, that, that applies to both individuals being unleashed within capitalism, but also the legal system. So a system of objective laws devoted to the protect, protection of individual rights will carefully consider the evidence if there's any sort of broader phenomenon that people really need to be worried about. But it will consider it objectively and without this anti development, anti-technology bias that we see from the environmental movement, where you just get these incredibly vague arguments about, well, we're all interconnected and we depend on nature, so therefore we can't tamper with it. I mean, that is complete garbage. There's nothing to that whatsoever. Quote, unquote, tampering with nature just means making it better uh, for our purposes, pursuing our self-interest as individuals and in the aggregate, and that in general makes things better. And if there's some negative byproduct of it, the solution is more technology, which means more of the mind. That, and whether that and that involves inventors coming up with technological solutions, and it, it means legislators using their minds rationally to deal with any unwelcome byproducts. But the idea that the whole enterprise of capitalism is fundamentally self-destructive, whether economically or environmentally, that contradicts all of human experience, and not accidentally, it will contradict all of the human future because the very, the very nature of what advances human life and the human environment is thinking uh, and technology and changing our surroundings. And uh, again, that's why we have Center for Industrial Progress because because it really needs to be an ideal that we transform our surroundings and not be some guilty thing or some temporary 
industrial segment of history that we now need to repent for or stagnate on. It's it's an ongoing project that needs to continue as long as we want uh, progress to continue. Uh, we'll have to wrap it up pretty soon, but Eric, anything in closing you want to say about capitalism or Occupy Wall Street or how to think about these issues? Well, uh, just one last thing, uh, which was that the the kind of attacks on uh, the older style attacks on the kind of inherent instability uh, and self-destructive nature of capitalism really ring hollow at this point uh, because the, the people, the, the kind of the intellectual movement that has been making these claims is now in the position where they're obviously standing in the way of any kind of serious additional uh, human welfare supporting development. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to claim that you're really for human well-being and, for instance, you, uh, you're against any reasonable form of power production, a point which you've made a number of times. Um, and, and so we've gotten to the point now where, you know, one could excuse some economic illiterate 150 years ago from taking these Marxist ideas seriously, but in the face of the last uh, 200 years of the development of humanity from 16-hour-a-day uh, brutal farm jobs to the you know 35-hour work week of the modern worker, um, there's there's very little reason to take any of these claims seriously on a larger level, and one has to be very suspicious of people who don't. Uh, don't even acknowledge the great things that capitalism and uh, and industrialism uh, have done over the last hundred years. Even if they think there are there are potential problems on the horizon, if they're not willing to acknowledge that enormous benefit convert, conferred onto all of mankind over the last century, at least, then there's something seriously wrong and potentially dishonest with the argument they're making. Yeah, and it's really, to the extent people believe it, it's really going to obscure the fact that although we're in difficult economic times, on a scientific and technological level, the, the potential for industrial development and therefore a higher standard of living has never uh, has never been higher. So, Eric, uh, thanks for going to, Occupy, going to Occupy Wall Street with me, and uh, thanks for being on the show again. My pleasure. Our Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Thanks again to Dr. Eric Dennis for joining us. Uh, one thing that struck me, especially toward the beginning of the show, where Eric was going into a lot of detail into things like what's the cause of the Great Depression, how increases in the money supply disproportionately and unfairly benefit the financial industry, is just how much factual complexity there is to these issues and how you really need to have an expert knowledge to understand at a fine-grained level what's going on. And at the same time, if you're going to make claims to other people, it's completely unacceptable to just make some offhand comment like, oh, repealing Glass-Steagall caused all the problems. I mean, that is a real sign uh, of sort of intellectual superficiality. And even if you were right, uh, intellectual disrespect for the person you're talking to because they don't have the context to understand that. Now, at the same time, there's a question of, well, what do we do about the fact that there's so much complexity? Part of what we do on Power Hour is we try to give you a general factual picture of things 
when we discuss various energy sources. And I think that's that's very important and every every American should have that kind of knowledge about various different fields. But what we can never really give you is an expert's in-depth knowledge, precisely because an expert is someone who spends all the time immersed in something and all the mechanics and all the details. But what you can have is both a general factual picture and a knowledge of crucial principles. And this is what I, I want to stress in this wrap-up. At the same time on Power Hour, we're, we're trying to get across certain facts. Often we'll try to get across certain principles about how the world works, how the energy world works, how the free market works, how government control works. And the more you learn about these principles, and these are principles of economics, principles uh, of philosophy, um, sometimes principles of science, principles of environment, the more you learn about these principles and these mechanisms, the better equipped you are to um, form intelligent opinions on issues, and the better you are to the better equipped you are to deal with someone who throws a barrage of facts at you. So, what you, I think, what you'll see sometimes if you watch these Occupy Wall Street videos or the Occupy Orange County videos or any of the others, is these protesters just throw a torrent of facts at me. Now, sometimes. Often I know what's specifically wrong with what they're saying, but often I don't engage it uh, on that level because what's really missing from their understanding is they have no understanding of how a market works. So let's take something like the issue of, of running out of resources. And this is something that even some very smart and sophisticated people are just totally clueless on the basic economic principles involved. There's this the number one resource running out view is called peak oil. And peak oil continuously blends together two issues. One is how much economically, um, how much affordable oil is there likely to be going forward, which is a complex uh, sort of forecasting question, which is based on geology and economics and all that stuff. But then the other thing they blend that together is, is the idea that, well, if there's some kind of shortfall of oil, that will mean a catastrophe. And what basic economics tells us is nothing of the sort happens as you know, if a resource really continues to decline in its availability, the price will go up, people will economize on it, and they'll find substitutes. Now, in other episodes, we've talked about some of the different exciting substitutes, the different ways you can substitute. You can substitute natural gas for oil in certain ways. You can do coal. There's enormous, enormous stores of natural gas on the bottom of the ocean, what's called methane hydrates. We can go into lots of hypothetical substitutes. But the basic point in economics just understanding how supply and demand work and how prices function, how they cause people to economize, how they encourage the search for substitutes, it's completely inexcusable that people have discussions about the future of energy and don't understand these basic things. So one thing to take away from today is look for the principles in what we're talking about and look for the principles when you hear uh, discussions in the culture. And with that, it's time to wrap up the Power Hour. Hopefully you learned something. If you did and you think it's important, tell your friends and colleagues whatever way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything but spam. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or especially love mail, you can send it to alex at alexepstein.com. To subscribe to this podcast and to subscribe to my monthly newsletter, you can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy. Make sure to like that. We're up above 1300 you can also go to alexepstein.com or industrialprogress.net um, we've got lots and lots of news going on at the center for industrial progress 
we've got our blog. I don't have to, time to cover it all now, but um, if you go check out that website, you'll see we're starting a, um, a new newsletter specifically for the center. There's just there's all sorts of good stuff coming, and we're really going to hit uh, January uh, with a running start. So check all of that out, and most importantly, come back, listen to Power Hour next month. Not sure what we'll talk about, but it'll definitely be another exciting topic, another exciting guest. And until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour is a TJ DeSantis production. Its content is intended for private use only.